That brings us to our text. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And so let's start by just reading it. This is the word that the Lord has for you this morning. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Father, we have just read your holy word. We acknowledge that unless you work in our hearts, we're no wiser than the Pharisees who read your word but didn't really get your word. And so we pray that you would help us now. We ask that you would help me to be clear and say only what is true and not hinder in any way the proclamation of your word. And we ask that you would help all who are listening, that you would grant to them a a great ability to focus and concentrate and fight off uh, distracting or vain thoughts, that their minds might be renewed and illuminated with your truths. And help us all to be hearers, not hearers only, uh, but doers as well, that by grace we might live out that which you teach us, that you might be glorified in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to make it a little easier to track what's going on here in the story, I have divided into three parts, and I think these three parts will serve us as the three points in our outline this morning. We're going to look at point number one, the law. Point number two, the lesson. And then point number three will be the Lord. The law, the lesson, and the Lord. So let's start with point number one, the law. And you can look at how our narrative starts there. Chapter 6, verse 1, on a Sabbath. This story. And the next one, look ahead to how the next section starts in verse 6, on another Sabbath. These two stories are all about Jesus and the Sabbath. So before we get into the details, let's just kind of step back a bit and talk a little bit about the Sabbath. I'm going to spend a, a good time kind of looking at Old Testament passages, Old Testament verses today. If you are a fast flipper and you feel comfortable with that, feel free to flip back to those passages. If you're less comfortable doing that, that's all right. You can look on the screen, follow along there, maybe jot down the references and take a deeper look later on. But what is the Sabbath all about? Let's start in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. This is God initially giving the Ten Commandments to Israel. Uh, The fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so on the seventh day, this is from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. That's how the days were reckoned back then. The Israelites were not to work. And it's not like I'll take the day off. 
but my work's still going to get done because of my workers. No, everybody was to have the day off. Servants, livestock, everyone. Now look at Exodus 31, verses 12 and following. God's going to give us some more details here. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And so it was to be a holy day, uh, set apart to worship the Lord. Show you one more verse from Exodus because it's very relevant for our story today. Exodus 34, 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Now, in a primarily agricultural society, like that's kind of a big deal, right? Even when it's plowing season, even when it's harvesting season, when there is a lot of work to be done, they still had to take that day off. Now, one of the reasons that I wanted to go through all of those verses and read them all to you is to show you that the law of Moses doesn't really give that much detail with regard to the Sabbath. Basically, God's law and commandments with regard to the Sabbath are don't work and set it aside as holy to the Lord. In a primarily agricultural society, again, that was characterized by constant work, this is a, a completely counter, counterintuitive idea. Where just take a day off, rest your body, refresh your spirit in worship to God. Don't work on your farms. Don't work by plowing and harvesting. Don't work by buying and selling. Uh, don't make your servants and animals work. But the Jews didn't leave it at that. And you can see where that comes from, right? Like, don't work. But okay, well, like, what is work? Like, what can I do? What can I not do? Can I do this? Can I do that? And so they added rules to God's word. Lots and lots and lots of rules. So in the Mishnah, which is, you can think of it as like a collection of oral traditions that were later written down, there's 24 chapters just about the Sabbath. 24 chapters, rule after rule, detail after detail, addressing scenario after scenario. Uh, For example, the Mishnah defined 39 broad categories of work, each with subcategories that would have been prohibited on the Sabbath. So for example, they said that you were not allowed to travel because traveling would be considered work. But nobody wants to sit around all day, right? So there was a limit uh, at 1,999 steps from your home. That's how far you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath. But there are certain ways around that. And so you could put a rope at the end of your block And that would then become the doorway to your house. And then you have another 1,999 steps from there. But remember, the Old Testament says nothing about how far you can walk on the Sabbath. That's a completely man-made addition to the law. And some of the rules, like, kind of getting a little ridiculous. uh, Because some rabbis would say that if you threw an object in the air and you caught it with your other hand, that would be considered work. But if you caught it with the same hand... That's okay. That is not work. 
And so don't you dare do any two-handed juggling on the Sabbath. But one-handed juggling, that's all good all day long. You couldn't tie a knot and you couldn't untie a knot because that's all work. But some rabbis would say that you're not guilty if you can untie a knot with one hand. Which again makes you wonder, right? Like how is tying a knot with two hands any more work than tying a knot with one hand? And more importantly, like it makes you wonder, like how in the world do you tie a knot or untie a knot with one hand? That's impossible. But I give all this to you to, to make one point, which is that none of these rules are coming from God's word. Now, if a Jew wanted to observe all of these things because they, in their conscience, believe that that's the best way to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, that that's the best way for them to rest and worship God and not work, well, great. But what the Pharisees did is they took all of these rules and they imposed them on everyone. This is what you must do on the Sabbath, and this is what you must not do on the Sabbath if you want to be right with God. The Word of God doesn't say anything about these specific things, but don't you dare break any of these rules. So they put these man-made rules on the same level of authority as the law of God itself. And so Jesus is right to later accuse them of tying up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and laying them on people's shoulders. But in a sense, that's exactly what they wanted. Because the more labor and rules and burdens they could set up, well, the more that they could do to keep those rules and the more self-righteous and self-justified they could feel. And so the Sabbath became to them the golden marker, maybe the most significant marker of their self-earned righteousness. Which brings us now to our story 20 minutes in, and we're just starting the story. But don't worry, we're only covering five verses this morning. Look again at verses 1 and 2. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So let's get the picture here. Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling from point A to point B. We don't exactly know where to where. Uh, back then, the, apart from the main roads and kind of the highways, your, your paths of travel were generally just kind of cutting through grain fields. And so they're walking through. They're hungry. And the disciples pick some heads of grain. They rub the grain in their hands to get off uh, the chaff or the shell or whatever it is. And they eat that grain. And immediately, the Pharisee alarm goes off. Not lawful. Not lawful. Which brings up a whole bunch of questions, doesn't it? Like, this is not happening in the public square. This is not happening at some large gathering. This happens while Jesus and his disciples are going through the grain fields. So it's like, all right, where did these guys come from? They're like Navy SEALs, like camouflage in the bushes with their binoculars, just waiting for Jesus and his disciples to do something so they could pounce on him. Guys, I've got, I've got Levi and I, I've got Peter at six o'clock. Now, I, th- I think, I think now confirmed, he is rubbing heads of grain in his hand and yeah, I, I think he's eating them. And then they just kind of like pounce out of the grain fields like, gotcha, caught you red-handed. This is ridiculous. But it gives you a sense of just how threatened they felt by Jesus. 
how desperate they were to take him down. Now, the Pharisees' issue with the disciples here is not that they're stealing. It's not that they are taking from someone else's fields, because interestingly, that kind of eating while traveling through someone else's grain fields, that was explicitly provided for in God's gracious law. Deuteronomy 23, 25. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Basically, you can have a little bit to eat. You're not allowed to like, take a sickle to it and, and, and steal from your neighbor's grain en masse, but what the disciples are doing here, just plucking a few heads of grain to eat, well, this was well within the merciful provision for hungry travelers that was explicitly allowed for in God's law. And so the issue here is not so much what they were doing. The issue is when they were doing it. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Because at least in the eyes of the Pharisees, according to their rules and regulations, what the disciples are doing here in verse 1, there's not just like one violation of the Sabbath. There, is four, there are four violations of the Sabbath. They're working in four different ways. Number one, by plucking the heads of grain, they're reaping. Number two, by rubbing the grain in their hands, they're threshing. Number three, by throwing away the chaff, they're winnowing. And number four, this whole thing is a violation of preparing food. Not lawful. Not lawful. But where do we even begin? I mean, it is reasonable to say that God's people shouldn't be reaping and harvesting in terms of like going out to their fields and working on the Sabbath. That seems pretty clear from God's word. But that's not what this is. This is weary and hungry travelers taking advantage of the gracious provision that God himself had given to them to glean from their fellow Israelites' fields. This does not work. This in no way violates the spirit of God's Sabbath law. This is just ridiculous nitpicking and hair-splitting. Like, any way you slice it, this is not what God meant when he said that on the Sabbath you shall do no work. They're not harvesting grain to sell at the marketplace. They're not storing up grain for the future. They're not earning a living here. They're just eating a few heads of grain for sustenance. And so in that sense, this story is very similar to the whole fasting situation that we covered a few weeks ago. Remember in the story, the Pharisees are horrified that Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting. But the issue isn't that Jesus and the disciples were breaking God's law. The issue is that Jesus and his disciples are breaking their law. But Jesus came to do his Father's will, not the Pharisees' will. And that's something that the Pharisees absolutely could not stand. Point number one, the law. That brings us to point number two, the lesson. Look at verses three and four. Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? He entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. I think Jesus' response here is really interesting. Because he could have said, okay, 
show me where what we are doing is prohibited in God's law. And that probably would have led to some discussion about their interpretation of the law versus uh, what God's word actually says. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't engage them on this front. Instead, he gives them a history lesson. He gives them a Bible lesson. Point number two, the lesson. Because in so doing, he's going to make an argument from the scriptures that they cannot refute. And the lesson comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. So turn there real quick so we can get the the context of the full story before we think about why Jesus cites this story. So at this point in David's life, he's already been anointed the next king of Israel. He's already defeated Goliath and thus become this national hero. Uh, He's already risen through the ranks to become Saul's right-hand guy, his top military commander. But all that leads to Saul feeling very threatened by David. And he becomes insanely jealous of David. And he hates David. And so he's tried, unsuccessfully, uh, to kill David multiple times. And so here, in chapter 21, David is on the run. David is fleeing for for his life from King Saul. And that's where we pick it up in verse 1. David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone? And no one with you. And David said to him, like the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which, with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now that is not a true statement, but that's a whole another sermon. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. So they're on the run, right? Saul is trying to kill them. But they're hungry, but they need to keep a low profile, right? They can't just go to the marketplace. And so they go to Nob, where the tabernacle is, and they think maybe the high priest can help us with our need. Verse 4, the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. We don't have any, like, ordinary bread lying around, but we do have this holy bread, the show bread, uh, the bread of the presence. The showbread was these 12 loaves of bread that were on the table in the holy place. The 12 loaves symbolizing the 12 tribes. And the whole thing was meant to illustrate God's fellowship with his people Israel. That that he was their God and they were his people. That his presence was with them. Hence the bread of the presence. Well, this bread was to be changed out every week, once a week. Uh, removing the old one and replacing it with the new. And then that old bread was typically for the priest to eat. But here, Ahimelech offers it to David. And David accepts because there's no bread like showbread. Verse 6, The priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Great. Wonderful story. But Why? Why, why is this story relevant? Like, why does Jesus refer to this of all stories in response to the Pharisees' accusation that his disciples were breaking the Sabbath rules by picking at grain? We'll turn back to Luke chapter 6 and look at verse 4. Look at how Jesus references how David entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those with him. And so the reason Jesus brings up this story about David is because David does something 
that is seemingly not lawful. That's a reference to Leviticus 24, verse 9 in particular, which says that the showbread was for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So putting it all together, right, this law in Leviticus 24.9 says that the showbread is for Aaron and his sons. It's for the priests. David and his men are not Aaron's sons. They are not priests. So this is consecrated bread. It's not supposed to be treated like common bread and given to the common people. But Ahimelech gives it to David and his men. And so how could Ahimelech have given the bread to David? How could David have eaten it? And why don't the scriptures condemn either of them for doing this? And the answer and the connection to our narrative is that, in, is that mercy, right? in David's case, to a man fleeing for his life because Saul is trying to kill him without cause, that the ritual ceremonies of the law can be set aside to show mercy to one in legitimate need. Right? In cases of emergency, deeds of necessity and mercy, God seems to allow for ceremonial restrictions to be put aside. And so Jesus' argument is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If David and his men can be accepted from a rule that is actually in the word of God, Leviticus 24.9, for the sake of mercy and for meeting basic human needs and not be condemned for it, well then how much more can Jesus and those who are with him violate a human rule? a human tradition that was added to the law of God, arbitrary human constructions of what constitutes work on the Sabbath for the sake of mercy and meeting basic human needs and not be condemned for it. Like if God makes gracious allowances in his law for legitimate human needs, well, how are you going to condemn my disciples for not following your rules to a T for legitimate human needs? If you want to condemn us, Go ahead. But first, you're going to have to start by condemning David. And that's why it's so genius for Jesus to use a story about David because David was like the Pharisee's hero. No Pharisee is going to dare to condemn David. And so you see, none of them have anything to say here to Jesus. Point number two, the lesson. But before we move on, I'm wondering if you noticed how Jesus introduced this story. Have you not read? Have we not read? Have we not read? Of course we've read. He's talking to the Pharisees here. These aren't just like casual synagogue goers, nominal Jews. These are guys who are all in, committed to the Old Testament. And so of course they've read the story of of David and the showbread in the sense that they knew the facts of the story. They knew what happened in the story. They probably knew it by heart. But at the same time, they haven't read the story of David and the showbread in the sense that they don't really know what it's about. They they don't understand the basic principles of mercy, how meeting basic human needs is more important than ceremonial regulations. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They missed all of that. Friends, I think that's a snare that Each and every one of us who are Christians, we need to be on guard for this. Especially 
in Reformed circles because we prioritize the Word of God so much. The snare that we've read the Scriptures, we haven't really read the Scriptures. Like, we know what it says, but we're missing the point. The sad truth is that sometimes it's the people who know the Word the best People who can quote Bible verses at you left and right. People who uh, know their theology. People who have all their theological ducks in a row. Of course we've read. But it's those people who, just on basic issues of grace and kindness and gentleness and compassion and love, it's like, have you not read? Like you're missing the point. The true test of a mature believer, like what reading the word is supposed to ultimately produce in us, it's not about whether we could pass a seminary quiz. Like surely the Pharisees would have been at the top of their class in that sense. No, it's the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And when it came to those things, The Pharisees were just barren fig trees. And brothers and sisters, we need to guard our hearts lest we fall into the same snare. Point number two, the lesson. And so we've seen the law. We've seen the lesson. That brings us to point number three, which is the Lord. Jesus is going to conclude this Sabbath controversy with what might be his most controversial and stunning statement yet. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, we're familiar with that phrase. Remember the story of the healing of the paralytic? Uh, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And here it's the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Now just to be clear, Jesus is not saying... I'm above the law. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, so I can break the Sabbath however I want, and my disciples can break the Sabbath however they want. No, Jesus never once broke God's law. He never once condoned his disciples breaking God's law. If he did, well, we're in a lot of trouble, because he can no longer be our sinless substitute on the cross. The only reason that he can go to the cross to die for us, for our sins, is because he perfectly and fully kept God's law. And so please don't think of Jesus as a Sabbath breaker, at least how God's law defines the Sabbath. He was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, including in how he perfectly kept the Sabbath. But what Jesus is saying is at least two things. First, because he's Lord of the Sabbath— It's him and not the Pharisees who gets to decide what is and what is not permissible on the Sabbath. The Pharisees have all these made-up laws about Sabbath-keeping, but if Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, if he says something's okay, then his disciples are not in sin. If the Lord of the Sabbath thinks something is permissible on the Sabbath, well, who are you Pharisees to say otherwise? But there's a second Uh, even greater implication to these words. Because think about it. The Sabbath was established by God himself. On Mount Sinai, in giving the law to Israel, God created and established the Sabbath as a reflection of his resting from his creation of all things. 
So if God established the Sabbath, both as the lawgiver who created that law and as the creator whose rest in creation it's supposed to reflect, and now Jesus is claiming to be Lord of that Sabbath, well, then the unavoidable conclusion is that Jesus is the lawgiver, that Jesus is the creator, that Jesus is God. You can only be Lord over a divinely established ordinance if you yourself are divine. And just like in chapter 5, you'll remember he made that claim to deity, right, that he has the authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he backs it up with a miraculous healing. Well, same thing happens here in chapter 6. He makes a claim to deity, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and then he's going to back it up with another miraculous healing on the Sabbath, as we're going to see next week. Let's think a little more about this profound statement. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Notice how in this entire Sabbath controversy, Jesus never really gets into like the finer points of the debate. Like, okay, let's, let's debate here. Let's discuss what threshing really is. Let's define reaping. Let, let's define what work is and what work isn't. Because that's not really the point that Jesus is trying to make here. And that's not really the point of this story. Rather, the point of this story is that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Which means not only that it's Jesus and not the Pharisees who gets to decide what is and what is not allowed on the Sabbath day. And so disciples, you're off the hook. You can keep on eating that grain because the Lord of the Sabbath permits it. But also, it's that Jesus and not the Pharisees, has the answers to what the true meaning of the Sabbath is. The Pharisees would tell you the point of the Sabbath, the meaning of the Sabbath, was that it was a means to be right with God. As part of this kind of keep the rules and you can be right with God, approach to God, as a major part of that mindset, they would tell you keep the Sabbath and you can be right with God. The Sabbath, the Sabbath is all about keeping the Sabbath. And here's how you do it. Here's 24 chapters about how you do it. Here's 39 things that you cannot do. Rules and rules and rules. This is how you rest in order to work your way to God. That's a sad irony. They basically took the Sabbath day, which was supposed to be a day of resting in God. A day set aside by God to be a delight and a joy and a blessing for his people. And they made it into the most laborious and burdensome and exhausting day of the week. And it's against that backdrop. It's against that mindset. It's against that pervasive misunderstanding of the Sabbath that Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And how does Jesus define the Sabbath? Well, in Matthew's gospel, the same exact story that we covered this morning from Luke chapter 6, uh, it's found at the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, it's chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And you know what comes right before that, uh, right before chapter 12? is chapter 11, of course. At the very end of chapter 11, you know what Jesus says? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light on a Sabbath day. And then we get into the same story that we covered this morning. And so the Pharisees are giving you all these rules about rest. This is how you're supposed to rest. This is how you're supposed to work your way to God. And Jesus says, no, you cannot work your way to God. You'll never find true rest that way. I will give you rest. Come to me. And so Jesus corrects their misunderstanding of the Sabbath by pointing to himself as the fulfillment of the Sabbath, pointing to himself as the true rest that all of God's people can find. And so all that stuff about not working and instead resting on the seventh day, all of that points to Christ and the rest that he gives. And so Pharisees, you you, you do all of these things to try to observe the Sabbath. But if you miss the Lord of the Sabbath, you've missed the point entirely. As Colossians 2 tells us, the Sabbath is but a shadow. The substance, the reality is Christ. By the way, in case you were wondering, we no longer have to keep the Sabbath, and it's because we have the reality, we have Christ, right? Not just resting from physical work, but resting from trying to save ourselves, resting in Jesus. And friends, that's the sweetest sound in the world to naturally legalistic people like us. I assume that nobody in this room is a Pharisee, that none of us are struggling with keeping the Sabbath as a means to getting right with God. But legalism, just trying to earn our salvation, trying to be right with God based on our own works, based on what we do for God, based on what we do for the church, well, that's still alive and well in contexts like ours, is it not? But friends, that is the most exhausting thing in the world. Rest is impossible. Because how can we ever know that we've done enough? How can we ever know that we've read enough Bible to be right with God? How can we ever know that we've stayed away from that sin for long enough to be right with God? How can we know that our good has finally outweighed our bad? If you're a Pharisee, how can you ever know that you've kept the Sabbath well enough? The simple answer is that we can't because works righteousness is never finished. But then you have Jesus. You have Jesus being fully God who really did live the perfectly righteous life that we never could. And yet being man, he dies in our place, bearing all of our sins suffering the wrath of God in our place so that we might be forgiven and giving us his perfect righteous record as a free gift. And so what does he cry on the cross? He cries, it is finished. It is finished, right? Sin is paid for. Righteousness is imputed. Sinners are made right with God. It is finished so that sinners like us who've been striving all of our lives in vain attempts at self-righteousness, we can finally rest in the works of another. It is finished so that we who've been carrying this burden of the Pharisees, right, trying to earn our own salvation, we can actually have confidence 
that we have done enough or rather that Jesus has done enough for us. The Lord of the Sabbath has died. The Lord of the Sabbath has risen again so that we who trust in him might actually have a true Sabbath, a true resting from our works. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 4. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And so friends, if you take nothing else away from this story, you need to remember this. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He and he alone is the rest that our weary souls need. That we might rest from our works, that we might rest from trying to save ourselves and place all of our trust in him alone, resting in him because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we in our sin, desire to work, to earn our righteousness before you as if that were something we could accomplish. But your word plainly says that that is not possible for you are a holy God. And so we pray that we as your people would learn to rest in the work of Christ, in him alone, and find our Sabbath rest in him. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not yet know you, who are still striving in vain to be right with you on their own terms. Father, we pray that today you would humble them and bring them to their knees that they might cry out for Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.